Hello, and welcome to Foreign Affairs Inbox, the entirely student-run and student-produced podcast of the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University. We're your producers and hosts, Taylor Galgano and Emma Anderson, two seniors presenting you with a journalism and international affairs collab on the latest trending global matters. This season's theme is peace, conflict, and protests. By the end of each episode, you will understand the issue at hand, no matter how complex. Prepare to hear from us and different Elliott School faculty to help with our own expert analysis. Want to hear us chat about a topic you're interested in? Slide into our DMs at Elliott School GW on Twitter or Instagram. Today, we are joined by Professor Cynthia McClintock, a professor of political science and international affairs here at the Elliott School. She holds a PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a BA from Harvard. Previously, she has served as the president of the Latin American Studies Association, a member of the Council of the American Political Science Association, and a fellow at the Wilson Center. Thank you so much for being here, Professor. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. The current refugee crisis in Venezuela can be dated all the way back to the beginning of Nicolas Maduro's reign, when the country spiraled into food shortages and high inflation. As Maduro's popularity faded, his opposition grew stronger. However, his administration was stacked with justices loyal to him, and they blocked an opposition leader from campaigning in the 2017 elections. Maduro eventually won re-election and was inaugurated on January 10, 2019. At this point, the UN estimated that 3 million Venezuelans had already fled the country. After massive protests against Maduro, opposition leader Juan Guaido claimed the presidency. Quickly, many Western foreign powers recognized Guaido's claim to the presidency, resulting in economic isolation that worsened the food shortages as Maduro refused aid from countries that recognized Guaido. Millions more Venezuelans fled to neighboring Colombia and Brazil as Venezuela itself had become depraved of food, resources, and money. Before Guaido claimed the presidency, less than one in five Venezuelans actually knew who he was. Some are saying that he is more popular outside Venezuela than in Venezuela, or that he is leading a U.S.-backed coup. Who is Juan Guaido? It remains popular in Venezuela. I mean, the most recent polls that I've seen say that he's still the most popular politician in Venezuela, although it's faded over the last year because the movement was not successful in overthrowing Maduro or in achieving negotiations with Maduro. So he was a relatively newcomer who had been in the shadow of Leopoldo Lopez, who had been the leader of his party, but Leopoldo Lopez has been in prison. So there was you know, a need for a new leader and this kind of opportunity when Guaido was elected to the head of the National Assembly, there are clauses in the Venezuelan constitution that enabled him to claim the presidency. But as you said, he was very much a newcomer when he emerged on the scene in January 2019. Fun fact, he's a GW grad. Yes, he is. You touched briefly on there were clauses in the Constitution that allowed him to claim power. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think a lot of people are sort of confused about where his claim to power came from. Yes. So the claim rests on the argument that the election of Maduro was not free and fair. Okay. Know that it was a fraudulent election. So in the case of a fraudulent election or the declaration of vacancy of the presidency and the vice president since that election was not free or fair, not a legitimate election. So in that case, third in line to the 
presidency on an interim basis until new elections were called is the head of the National Assembly. So Guaido himself declared that it was a fraudulent election then? Or who determines that? Well, there were very few election monitors there. The government did not allow the OAS to monitor the election. And as I recollect, even UNASUR, sort of South American organizations, were not allowed to monitor. But it was all of the governments that support Guaido believe it was not a free and fair election. As you mentioned in the preamble, there were disqualifications of rival candidates, candidates in jail, very, very skewed media. And then just for our listeners to clarify, the U.S. does support and back Guaido. So therefore, by the U.S. doing that, we also are sort of sending a message that we view the election as fraudulent. Mm -hmm. So I guess something that I'm curious about is if many powers are supporting Guaido and saying that the election was fraudulent, who isn't supporting him? And why do they feel that the elections weren't fraudulent? The key backers of Maduro are Russia and China. Russia in particular became the major purchaser of Venezuelan oil and then resold that oil to China. India also stepped in to buy some of the oil. There was a vote in the UN Security Council not long after Guaido's emergence, and China and Russia were saying no meddling, no intervention, this is leading to instability. They were not saying that the election was free and fair. The mantra was non-intervention in a regime, and as you can imagine, Russia and China are concerned when an outside power says, hey, for whatever set of reasons, this government is not legitimate and we have a right to intervene. Right. That makes sense. The Trump administration has increased sanctions on Venezuela in response to Maduro's reign and the, quote, humanitarian catastrophe. The State Department has revoked hundreds of people's visas and imposed sanctions on Venezuela's state oil company. Do you think these sanctions are working to put pressure on Venezuela? I do think they put pressure on Venezuela, but, you know, as I mentioned, since Venezuela has other allies, they have not produced the kind of collapse that perhaps the Trump administration thought that they would. It's quite similar, really, to the sanctions against Cuba, you know, decades ago, when definitely the sanctions hurt Cuba, but Cuba, you know, had an ally in the Soviet Union and was able to also find allies elsewhere, and so the sanctions you know, did not succeed. I think in general, sanctions tend to succeed when virtually everybody is on board and there are not you know, other powers that are willing to kind of help out the sanctioned country. Right. So because other countries are sort of backing Maduro still, the U.S.'s sanctions don't really seem yeah. to be having a huge effect on him. That's interesting. Okay, so now switching gears a little bit, as we sort of have spent most of the time talking about political instability with leadership, it also has had obviously a major effect on Venezuela's people. Can you paint a picture for us of what Venezuela looks like right now, day to day? Well, it's tragic. This is a country that at one point, you know, in the early 1970s was the most prosperous in the hemisphere. It was democratic. And, you know, I was in Caracas quite a few times during the 70s, and it was just a joy to be there. It was a wonderful place to be. And now I think the average weight loss in 2018 was something like 20 pounds. And you know, as you mentioned at the start, 
Now, almost 5 million Venezuelans are estimated to have left. That's something like 15% of the population. This is the largest exodus that Latin America has ever seen, you know, much larger than the exodus from Cuba in the early 1960s. So Venezuelans are leaving because there's no food, there's no medicine, or if you're sick, there's no antibiotic. So it has been a desperate situation. It's actually a little bit better now than it was a year ago. Maduro decided to open the economy a little bit, remove many of the regulations, efforts at currency controls and the like that had been in place. And so things are a little bit better now, but remain catastrophic for most people. Do you think Guaido has anything to do with it being better now than it was a year ago? No, I don't. I think it's mostly to do, or almost entirely to do, with the Maduro government changing its economic policies and becoming somewhat more realistic. And then also, as often happens with respect to sanctions, either they work or the country finds other sources of trade. In this case, the exports to Russia, China, India becoming more stabilized. Apparently, there's been some support for oil production so that the refineries are working a little bit better. What do you mean by making their economic policy more realistic? Well, again, there have been a lot of currency controls, and now it's kind of like, okay, well, if people have dollars from remittances from the United States, well, let's let them use them. Let's not create all kinds of barriers and obstacles to the use of the dollar, and the dollar can become sort of the de facto currency, and we're okay with that, rather than trying to insist on uh, a currency regime. Okay, got it. So as we were talking about a second ago, Venezuela obviously is having a major refugee crisis. In history, they've accepted many refugees and migrants from across the world, but now the tables have turned and there are more than 4 million Venezuelan refugees living around the world. Given the blockage on aid by Maduro and the persistent sanctions by the U.S. that worsen the problem, how can the international community respond and provide support for Venezuela? I'd like to see the international community provide a lot, lot more aid, economic aid, support for the refugees, support for the countries that have, by and large in Latin America, the countries to date have been pretty open to the refugees. But, you know, as I think we all understand, you know, when you're getting into the range of a million refugees, two million refugees, this is a tremendous burden. So the need for places to live, help support in jobs, food, medicine, these kinds of things, the international community should do much more in my view. So the crisis in Venezuela was famously said to surpass serious crisis by 2020. It is the largest refugee crisis in the region in recent history, and yet it all occurred without war or armed conflict. Have there been any other crises of similar scales as a result of only political conflict? No, as I think we said, this is unprecedented. There was also a large exodus from Cuba in the early 1960s, but by and large, that's been more gradual and it was not as significant as this one. And of course, that was larger to the United States, where you know, this is affecting poor countries in South America. There have been quite a few you know, Venezuelan refugees to the United States, but Colombia, Peru, Chile, Brazil, also even countries to the north as well. So it's almost every country has been seeing some Venezuelan refugees. So what will it take for Maduro to accept aid and to end the crisis? Sadly, in my view, the conventional wisdom at this point is that 
Venezuela is more likely to look like Cuba than it is to have a democratic transition. It's hard at this point to kind of see the route to change. In my view, the kind of response of Guaido and the Trump administration in January of last year was hasty, impromptu. Uh, there were references to a military intervention that went over badly in Latin America. You know, not having a joint action it would have been catastrophic within Venezuela. But again, I don't think the Trump administration was as cognizant of the challenges as it might have been back last year. Maybe none of us was. Maybe we were all a bit too hopeful. The hope was for an uprising within the Venezuelan military. And when that didn't happen, the thought was maybe we can get Maduro to negotiate in good faith. Negotiations had been tried before and had not been successful. The hope was, well, maybe we can get them work again. There was an effort over the summer, but that too came to naught. There are many, many divisions within the opposition, which have not been helpful whatsoever. And for Maduro's part, again, with a little bit of improvement in the economy, he's been able to maintain the co-optation, the, the bribes, the intimidation that have enabled him to survive. The economic issues that Venezuela faces, such as high inflation and food shortages, are not new by any means. Even if the current tension between Guaido and Maduro is resolved, how will Venezuela recover from this? I know you said earlier that you are worried or not hopeful that it won't end up sort of in a similar way as Cuba. So is that what you predict happening? I think the hope for an economic recovery, first and foremost, is with Venezuelan oil. And that's been the mainstay of the Venezuelan economy for decades. And in order for a recovery to take place, obviously, we would want, ideally, for Venezuela to be producing you know, all kinds of goods, whether it's food, get into technology, get into tourism, get into diverse manufacturers. But that's obviously decades in the making. It doesn't happen overnight. And in the short run, Venezuela has to look to its oil industry for economic recovery. And as I mentioned, there seems to have been some. And what happened, again, referring a little bit to Maduro's mismanagement of the economy, many of the key managers of the oil industry left. There was sort of total looting of the Venezuelan oil company PDVSA. All of that has to change, you know, and with obviously a new government, the hope would be to bring back a lot of the expertise that the company lost. Also, if that government were stable, you know, obviously right at the moment, other than China and Russia, no one wants to invest in Venezuela at the moment, right, with the instability and the crisis. So if there were stability, that would lead to new investment, too. But in the short run, Venezuela needs to revive the oil industry if it wants to kind of get on its feet again. Just really quick, what changes might we see in the region as they adapt to the millions of refugees that have taken refuge in all these different countries? So far, the political impact has not been that major. I think the concern is, you know, not too differently from Europe, the United States, that there would be a you know, backlash, kind of a nativistic backlash against the Venezuelans. And of course, to a certain extent, you know, if there isn't economic support, if there isn't food for the refugees, they land, they have no recourse, and these concerns about crime, and then those are aggrandized and exploited at times by kind of nativistic leaders. So that's one concern. 
I think the other major concern is just, you know, right now in Latin America, economic growth rates are overall quite low, barely 1% of that per year the last couple of years. So these are governments that are struggling. We saw the protests last fall in Bolivia, Ecuador, Chile, Colombia. So, you know, many governments are struggling, and this is kind of one more burden for them. And it's, I think, why the international community really needs to step up to the plate here. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on, Professor, and definitely answered a lot of our questions. Super interesting. Yeah, this was a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. I think it was, too. I'm glad you found it that way, and let's just hope for a better future for Venezuela. Yep. Definitely. So that was a really interesting discussion. More than interesting, I feel like that was very upsetting to hear about. It was. It was very, it was a real downer. As the professor was sort of saying, I mean, it's really sad that she was able to visit Venezuela in the 70s when it was a democratic and sort of a thriving state. Mm -hmm. And now it's turned into a dictatorship and over 4 million refugees, like just a very dark transition for a country to go through. Very sad. Yeah, it was very sad. And it's, it's really terrible that this crisis is like so massive. And I feel isn't getting as much media attention anymore. Like, it's sort of faded from relevance, which is really sad. It has, and I don't think that we're going to see Venezuela completely recover from this Mm -hmm. in our lifetimes. And the fact that she compared it to Cuba is also somewhat concerning, too, because this is a conflict that was caused by just a Mm -hmm. political conflict between two leaders. And I think we should talk more about... Speaking of political instability and the political leadership, did you fully understand how she described where Juan Guaido came from? Like, did that make sense to you, Emma? I honestly didn't really understand. I think that there's a lot about Guaido that's sort of in the shadows still. I know personally that when Taylor and I were doing research for this episode, we couldn't find information about Guaido's claim to power almost anywhere. Yeah, it was very difficult to research where he came from. And we knew that he was a big sort of leader in his party, The Popular Will Party. Popular Will Party, yeah. Mm -hmm. We knew that, but in regard to how he suddenly declared himself as president, there was little information about that besides the fact that, like, the U.S. was immediately almost in support of him, Mm -hmm. which led to a lot of people believing that the U.S. might have had something to do with it or that other countries had something to do with it. But it was very interesting because when she explained it, she was not confused by it at all. When I asked if it had anything to do with a coup, she did not even address that point, if you noticed that. I did notice that. She also didn't address some of the statistics that we found online about how 81% of Venezuelans didn't know who he was until he claimed himself to power. Right. She even at one point said that he was third in command of taking the presidency after someone else was in prison that he was able to step up Mm -hmm. so that to her it made logical sense where he came from and why he sort of claimed the role Mm -hmm. as president of Venezuela. Right. I think it says a lot about who's supporting who and I think it's hard when like we sort of come from one perspective, which is a very, like, U.S.-American perspective, and that, like, our government supports Guaido, so, and, like, that's what most of our media supports, and it was really hard for me and Taylor to find information that gave any sort of explanation outside of supporting Guaido, basically. Well, but there is a different sort of discourse in the U.S. that I think has said that Guaido is sort of random. And I think we've also read that too, that people didn't even know who he was in Venezuela before he stepped into power and that maybe there's some sus stuff going on with him. We did also read that, 
But at the same time, the same articles that said that still were not in really support of Maduro either because he's a dictator. And obviously what he stands for, the U.S. does not. So it makes sense that we wouldn't find much in favor of Maduro, although the professor who was just with us seemed very strongly to feel like Maduro was responsible for a lot of the crisis that's going on, that blame can be placed on him. It was the vibe that I got. Do you agree with that? I definitely agree with that. But I think that within like progressive like circles and like leftist ideology they would not agree with what she said right and especially just like what I've learned in like my Elliot classes and all these other things like in general being critical of anything the U.S. supports basically and I think she used the word non-interventionism which is obviously like a big sort of like buzzword in like foreign affairs and things like that And I just think that there's a lot of conflicting dialogues going on about Guaido. We're not really sure where he came from. The professor has a different viewpoint than, like, progressive leftists do. And just a lot of online American sources, too. Mm -hmm. So I think definitely to wrap up our sort of analysis, very interesting conversation. I almost wish that we had, like, better access to research. Like, I felt like Emma and I sort of hit a wall when we were researching this, where we kept sort of seeing the same things and we're not finding answers to questions that we had. So it was good that I think the professor filled in some of those gaps for us. But I think that even at GW, like there were very limited resources for us that were in just kind of blind support of Guaido and his sort of momentum and him taking power in response to an illegitimate election. Mm-hmm. And the comparison to Cuba was really interesting because of like our really tense history with Cuba. Yes. I thought it was interesting that she said that Venezuela could end up like that because that sort of foreshadows like a very serious conflict and a lot of tensions. Like what you've heard? Don't forget to follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and most importantly, link your friends. I'm Emma Anderson. And I'm Taylor Galgano. And thank you for tuning into this episode.